ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Mario Musa. He's the co-author of The Culture Puzzle, president of Musa Consulting and an affiliated faculty member in the College of Liberal and Professional Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. He also teaches in the School of Professional Studies at New York University and is an educator at Duke University Corporate Education. Mario, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Culture is something that gets bandied about a lot as important. You know, the whole culture eat strategy for lunch mantra, which is often followed by our people are our greatest asset. But then it's treated as if it's something that's controllable and made out of whole cloth from the top. And the book that you and your co-authors wrote really takes this approach apart and treats it as something that leaders can recognize and through recognition and understanding influence. And your book starts with an introduction that talks about giving and getting and how anthropologists look at the cue that reveal the deep motivations that people have, things like the desire to be part of a group, the desire to receive recognition for being special, and the drive to do good work. Are these universal human things? Yeah, absolutely. They are. And that's one of the points we make throughout the culture puzzle, that culture is it's universal. It happens everywhere. People come together. Uh, culture has been happening ever since people have been getting together for thousands and th- thousands of years. So in a way, what we do in the book is we go back to the roots of culture and we get back there by way of, of social science. And we ask, you know, what really happens mm-hmm. when culture comes together? And that's the perspective from which we look at culture in the contemporary business world. And that leads us to a lot of the points that we make. And you already touched on a couple of key points. One, culture is absolutely about giving and getting. It's about human connection. That's a really important point. So we come together and form a culture because we do better when we come together. We do better in groups than we do individually or even in in pairs. And that process of coming together and a adapting, that's the process of culture. And that process makes us human. And and in that sense, culture is is primary. Often as culture is treated as a kind of sideshow, something that you can pay attention to once you attend to all of the other issues of a business. Exactly. I, I was actually thinking, you know, these are these basic human needs that drive culture exists. And regardless mm-hmm. of whether you recognize them or not, they, they yeah. simply are. But I've come across more than one CEO who talks about developing culture and they plan to roll it out when they're ready and not a moment sooner. Can that approach, though, that approach to we are going to sit in our C-suite and divine the culture we want, can that approach be successful? 
Not really. <laughs> <laughs> My thesis is, is held up. Excellent. And, you know, the reason is that culture is always rolling out. I mean, that's one of the interesting things about it. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you bring a group of people together. Let's say you start a business and you say, okay, here's what the business is about. Here are our customers, here's the product or service and so on and so forth. And then, okay, we put all those pieces together. What's the culture? Our point is people come together and you have a culture. And so in that sense, it's all it's always rolling out. Now, that's not to say that folks in the C-suite can't get together and ask, okay, how do we want to influence culture? Right. How do we want to shape it? How do we want to grow it? That's different. But it's always there. It's always happening. This desire for control. And, and you talk about that tendency, the sort of sun god tendency in the book. So if someone is the head of people and they see their leadership doing this sun god routine, are there ways that they can influence the leadership culture? Is there a way that subordinate culture can influence these leaders? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, the head of HR, others who are, you know, typically responsible for culture can influence leaders and influence the way that they lead. Uh, That's key. Uh, So maybe we could back up for a moment and talk a bit about sun gods, because I think that's really key. The book starts with a story about the pharaoh Akhenaten, who thought of himself as a a sun god. It's an actual story. It happened about 3,500 years ago in Egypt. What Akhenaten did was decide that he was going to start a new religion. And he started a number of other things as well. He started building a city and he changed administrative structures. He ushered in all kinds of changes all at once, all under the umbrella of a a new religion, the sun god religion. And he was at the center of that religion. And that's a kind of metaphor for us. And we say that that you still see sun gods at work today. And many CEOs operate like sun gods. And I think that's just what you were suggesting. Akhenaten's story doesn't turn out well. And often it's the case that you know, contemporary sun god stories don't turn out well. I mean, you see that at WeWork and Wells Fargo and lots of other businesses where their culture has gone wrong. So how do you how do you influence leadership? I think it's important to know what really are the drivers of culture. And that's another point that we focus on in the culture puzzle. We identify the forces that drive culture and we make those forces observable, manageable. Uh, it's all captured in a, in a simple framework. How do you influence culture? By talking about those, those four basic forces that we identify in the book that drive culture, vision, interests, habits, and innovation. What I would say to those who want to influence leaders in their organization, and I often help them do that as an organizational consultant, is to have a conversation with them about vision, about interests, about habits, about innovation, and help them see that that's what drives culture. It's not flexible Fridays. It's not foosball. It's not snacks. I just want to clarify, those are universal drivers. That this is despite, despite culture being this unruly beast, there are these patterns which are observable and and universal. And and this that's is exactly way- right. Okay. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's exactly right. That's a really important point. It's you see this, you see it in ancient Egypt. 
Uh, you see it in contemporary Paris. Uh, right. You see it in the founding of a country. You see it everywhere. Whenever people come together, they ask, okay, where are we going? That's vision. Uh, they seek to satisfy their basic human needs for social contact, for meaningful work. They engage in rituals that reinforce their values. That's habit. And they're always tinkering around the edges of doing things differently or better. So you see that wherever groups come together. Now, those forces might be cloaked in different ways. People dress differently. They speak different languages. They have different political structures, org structures, so on and so forth. But you're exactly right. It's those basic forces that are driving culture. Before we dive into those specifics, and I, I do have questions around the specifics, there are a couple of just sort of larger functional questions I have. And one is you mentioned in the book that the chasm between senior leadership and the rest of an organization is a perennial problem. And I was curious if this gap is material different from the gaps between other levels within an organization between middle managers and their staff? That is, is it a leader follower gap? And this is just the head of the beast, or is there really something different in the nature of the, the very top leadership and the rest of the organization, that perennial chasm? Yeah, there is and there isn't. So there, there I think there are two important points to make about your observation. So one is top teams, senior teams are powerful. They have authority. Okay. So you have to take that, you have to factor that into your thinking about a particular organization and it, its culture. How does power play out? How is authority exercised? So that's, mm -hmm. that's one point. But the other point that's really important to remember is that we're all tribal. And it happens with any group that, that people come together and they form what we like to call a tribe. And we use right. that term, which has a kind of checkered history, because it does get at this kind of basic human uh, uh, dynamic of forming a small group with a certain way of doing things. Right. So every group is tribal. And so well, and top teams are tribal. <laughs> there, there are many tribes. Well, and, and, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting when you're talking about tribes, it almost seems like there's an iron law of entropy within tribes, that there's a tendency for interests to cause fragmentation. And then that mm. there are subgroup sub tribes within tribes. My question is, how small does it go? Is there an ideal stable size? Because earlier in the conversation, you made note that we, as a sort of developmental biology survival thing do better in groups and that better than as individuals. And in fact, you, you made the point of saying better than just pairs. So I'm assuming it's more than a pair, but what is the, is there an ideal size and why does it always break down? Yeah. All good questions. Roughly the ideal size for a team, and this is, doesn't come just from our writing and research. Many people have made this observation is about six to eight people. Once you, once you get above that number, it becomes hard to manage the dynamics of a group. And just think about how hard it can be to manage the dynamics of a, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversation. Right. And then you multiply that by five or six people and things pretty rapidly could become quite complex. So roughly six to eight, what six to eight gives you is diversity, but not a size so large that it's hard to manage the, the dynamics. And then in terms of uh, the organization 
overall. I mean, there, ver- there are various points of view about what you know, an ideal size is or you know, what's manageable. But once you get beyond, let's say you have a tribe and, or a team and then a number of teams, I mean, keeping track of much many more than let's say 40 or 50 people is, is hard. Mm-hmm. So there is a kind of natural process that often happens where there's, as you said, there's fragmentation. So mm-hmm. there's a startup, you have, you know, you have a small team and then, then those teams fragment and then the organization grows and you have different geographical sites, so on and so forth. So that all that tends to happen naturally. And it has a lot to do with the capacity or the limits of our capacity to keep track of who's doing what, who's thinking what, so on and so forth. But as far as teams go, roughly six to eight. And then as far as administrative structures go for a unit, you know, 40 to, to 50, I mean, these are, you know, these are rough guidelines, but the basic, right. the basic point is that there is this tribal dynamic Right. If, you, if you like, and there's also a, a dynamic around fragmentation, as you were suggesting, and you need to manage that. You know, right. it, it, it doesn't just happen. Right. Well, it really came to light when talking about interests as a driver of culture and alignment of interests and that that you are going to have fragmenting interests. And so I was kind of thinking, well, how small can those interest buckets go? <laughs> Which is yeah. why I was asking, asking that. But backing up to vision, vision feels like something that comes from the top. How does the rest of an organization interact with vision? Yeah, well, that's a that's a really good point. Um, I think it's in a lot of ways the the process of building a culture or shaping a culture or reviving a culture does begin with vision. But I think it's important to kind of burst the bubble of the the conventional wisdom about vision that it springs from the head of a, a lone genius or it comes it's down not from Zeus from his Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Or you know, come down it come down it comes down from on high from the mountaintop, you know, from the C suite mountaintop. It can, but our point is that engagement drives performance. So if you uh, if you're creating a vision that resonates with people across the organization, your organization, and they can see themselves in that vision, that's going to be a much more effective vision than something you come up with in a, in a conference room or at, at your desk. It, it, your vision might start there, but you know, back to something that we were talking about a little earlier in our conversation, culture is about give and take. It's about connection. So a really important question is, Okay, we have we have a vision, or we have a you know a draft of a vision. What do people think about it? Do mm. they connect to it? Do they see themselves in it? So, for us, vision is an is an active, collective, iterative, iterative process. Well, you know, as we said, everybody, every group comes together and they want to know where they're going. But if your answer to that question is just your answer, it's not going to be a very effective answer. So it has to be shared. Right. Well, I thought that one of the things that was interesting is in talking about vision and communicating vision and the stories we tell. And that yeah. at one point in the book, and I thought this was really like, oh, so cool that there are just as there are these universal drivers, there are also there tend to be buckets of stories like yeah. the, the organizational mythology yeah. and 
And I thought, well, that's really interesting that if you can understand the typical buckets that an organization's mythology, their, their stories fall into, you can start ferreting out what's going on in a culture. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, I like the way you put it, you know, kind of there are mythological stories and we identify a few building on research that others have done. You know, some of the, like some examples are, okay, how do you get in, how do you get ahead in this organization? Right. Uh, or what happens when you make a mistake? Or can you trust the boss? Or you know, is it safe to speak up? So those are, those are mythological themes. And uh, and so if you know that, you should be thinking about how you answer those questions in your, in your vision. How does your vision address them directly or, or, or indirectly? What are the stories that you want to tell that connect with, with people's concerns about those deep mythological themes, that, you know, universal themes that come up again and again for people? Well, and if you tell one story, but act a different story, that it won't fly, that people, Absolutely. See, that, people yeah. see that gap. You know, another thing is, obviously, I think interest is very interwoven with vision, because it seems like if it's about engagement, driving performance, it's about my interest being engaged. Yeah. Is that fair? Now, one of the things I was curious about, do interests reside within the tribe or are tribal interests the summation of individual interests? Are they, or are they a blend? That's a complex question. It's both. <laughs> and go. <laughs> <laughs> it's both. I think you put it nicely. So we all have these, everybody has these needs everywhere. And that's always been the case. Uh, mm -hmm. We, we want to get along with others. We want to be part of a group. You know, we have deep social needs. We want to get ahead. We want to be recognized for our work. We want to do meaningful work. You know, we have a, we have a, a need for, for a purpose. So are those the, universal? Those feel very Western. I, I, I yeah, well, okay. that's a really good question. This then that leads to the second part of your question. At the same time, the group or the culture that's formed influences the way we think about those needs. Uh, you know, so, so um, if I could just tell a quick story please. about a tribe in Africa that up until recently uh, basically lived a hunter-gatherer kind of lifestyle. And it was very non-hierarchical. And we were talking about this, my co-authors and I, one of whom is Greg Urban, who's one of the world's, if I could say so, leading cultural anthropologists. And we were discussing this. Well, how does that fit with getting ahead? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, Greg had a really interesting insight about that. He said, well, he said, I think in, in that tribe, you get ahead by being the best, most supportive, non-egoistic tribe oh, member. Oh, <laughs> interesting. Right. I thought, yeah, there you go. And right. he, then, he, then he told the story of uh, some of his field work where he was working with, in, uh, with tribes where if you were out hunting, the practice was to give uh, the to give what you catch to others in the tribe. You don't hold on to it, uh. so you know you become uh, you become good at you know being good at, at at hunting means you give things away. So the, that's an example of how the tribe, the tribe's culture, can influence those needs. They're expressed in different ways, but they're well, still and, present. And that giving away and that the 
habitual, habitual nature of that leads us to habits. And I was curious whether habits enforce culture or they're the result of it. Again, it's a little bit of both. I mean, that's because it was uh, it's it's a kind of a chicken egg thing, right? Yeah. So as we as we like to say, why do we do the the things the way that we do? Because that's the way we do things, and that's the way we've always done things. Right. So there is there is an aspect of habit that that has to do with with momentum. You know, things just keep going because that's how uh, that's that's how we've always done things. At the same time, you can uh, you can make you can decide. I mean, that's the you can decide how you want to do things. You can mm-hmm. decide to create new habits. And, you know, we do this all the time on the individual level and the group level. Okay. We're not happy. Uh, we're, we're, we want to get in better shape. So we exercise, so we develop the <laughs> habit of exercising, but right. you know, on the group level, we might, we might decide, you know what, our conversations are really not very productive. They're not satisfying. We need to have we need to hold our different. We need to hold meetings differently. That okay. uh, that might lead then to thinking about okay, how do we develop new habits around meeting, and mm-hmm. having discussions and making decisions. So, the the larger point I'm gonna I'm gonna use a philosophical term here that I think is is relevant is culture is 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 dialectical. In this, in the sense that you have these these four basic forces that are universal in the way that we've discussed, you know, vision, interest, habits, and innovation. But then, once those forces get moving, and they get moving as soon as we come together with with other people, mm-hmm. then they kind of then reinforce and influence those uh, very forces. I see. And right, so there's course. a kind of feedback of, uh, effect. And that's, that's one reason why culture is so dynamic and to us so interesting because that process is happening all the time and it never stops because we're always adapting. Oh, our customers have, have new needs or new desires. We have to respond to that. Right. And how then that's why rituals are useful if we want to shift habits that we can use, we can deploy them to do that. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Now, one of the things, the pieces of the puzzle, which I felt was really different that I, that you guys had, had called out that I was like, wow, I've never thought of it that way. And that's the innovation piece. And that's why I saved it for last. Mm -hmm. I've never heard of it discussed as being a, a necessary part. It's one of a, the driver people are driven to innovate. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. what does innovation mean in the context of culture? I mean, can you can you explain it a little bit more? Yeah, innovation. You can think of innovation as adaptation. It's mm-hmm. fi- figuring out how to thrive in your environment. So, in in certain situations, it's it's about okay, how do we catch that animal because we have to eat tonight. So it's thinking about how to do that best. And then in other situations, it's about how do we respond to what our competitors are doing or, uh, or how our customers are thinking and, and so on. So innovation, think of innovation as one of the core activities that we engage in in order to adapt. So culture in so many ways is about adaptation and innovation drives that adaptation. For us, it's really important to make that link between culture and adaptation, and as you say, and innovation, because 
that really gets at its core purpose or its meaning. Yeah, it's about how we dress. It's about how we eat. It's about the language we use. It, it's all those things. But fundamentally, what is it about? It allows us to adapt to our environment in ways that other animals don't. Other animals may have forms of culture, but mm. they don't have the kind of culture we do, it seems, that mm-hmm. allows us to adapt in such extraordinary ways. I mean, why is it that we can live on mountaintops, in deserts, on the right. sea, by the sea? I mean, we are an amazingly adaptable species. Why right. is that? It's because of culture. And so that brings us back to your basic point. Yeah, it's so much about innovation. And there's not just one way to do it. I think that's a kind of corollary point. Mm-hmm. Um, that's related to your observation. From our perspective, there's just way too much emphasis on how a few companies innovate mm-hmm. these days. You read a lot about Amazon. You read a lot about Apple. They're great companies in their in well, their way. I they mean, innovate, but they innovate in their way. I also think what's interesting is you can be good at something and also not necessarily. You can be great at innovation and not necessarily have a very healthy culture. Absolutely. Um, I, you know, I would Absolutely. say, yeah. I mean, I so, would say one yeah. of your examples is a company who doesn't necessarily have a great culture for yes. its, for its yeah. people. Yeah. Um, so we won't name names. We won't name names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. You can innovate, but then maybe you're creating a culture where people can't be human. Right. Yeah. You know, where they don't get their, their basic needs. Not. Right. So, um, so that's, you know, for so you us, you need to, you need to keep track of all of these drivers. It's not just leaning into the one it yeah. seems. And, and related to the culture is dialectical point. It seems like there are two kinds of cultures that people talk about. People are talking about culture a lot these days. There's the inside culture of an organization and the outside culture of the consuming mm-hmm. public. Do mm-hmm. both types of culture have these same foundations? Yes. That I'll answer that question simply. The answer is, <laughs> yes. is yes. But the you know the complexity comes in in the interaction between the culture inside and the culture outside. Well, so it's yeah. not it's not like there's an impermeable boundary. Like okay, we have our culture and we're going to bring that culture to the market, and that's what that's what our customers, that our clients, that's what they're going to interact with. In that interaction. Both cultures change because culture is always changing. You know, we have a lot of businesses, which obviously they want to maintain a a good, healthy culture internally for themselves, but they also want to be a consumer centric business. They want to really address their consumers. And so understanding the consuming public's culture becomes part of what they want to be able to achieve. Would it be fair to say in the same ways that one can recognize internal culture patterns and drivers that if you were to have an organization and they wanted to understand their customer culture, they, they could apply some of the same thinking. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, uh, your questions, because they're so good, rates so many connections. So one, absolutely. If, if a company wants to understand its customers, they could apply this framework. They, they uh, so what would they do in applying the framework, making that really concrete? They would actually talk to their customers, mm-hmm. or they would observe them. I, for example, IKEA does some really interesting work in in this respect. They actually employ anthropologists 
Hmm. They, they employ people who are ethnic, ethnographically trained to observe the way their customers use their products. You know, how do they sit on a sofa? For example, there's a great story that's told about one of them realizing that that customers didn't act typically sit on the sofa. They sat on the floor against the sofa. And oh. it's just the way the use of this particular product evolved. Well, that's interesting. Who would have thought that? You wouldn't know that unless you go out in the field and observe. So the point is co- companies can apply this framework and understanding their uh, their customers. And then on the other side, just a, an observation I wanted to make. I think these days with social social media and when it's you know it you can communicate so flexibly and quickly, instantly, you know, to, with others, but also with companies. I think it's opened up a kind of space in which we can engage in a dialogue with companies about who right. they are, what they are, how they represent uh, our aspirations. So, and I think there are some companies that are standouts in this respect. You know, I think, I think Apple has done right some really interesting things in, in this area. So they've, they've made themselves into a kind of aspirational brand, you know, so right. you're using a product, you're using an Apple product, but you're also kind of inhabiting a kind of psychological space. In addition to people talking about culture, there are certain catchphrases which you start hearing percolate, like the speed of culture. Yeah. Does culture have a speed and is culture change accelerating? I think it is. I think the three of us, my co-authors and I learned a lot about that during the pandemic. So we, we've been working on the book for years, years and mm. years, but we actually sat down and started writing the book just as the pandemic was. Perfect. Finished. Perfect yeah. crucible to really yeah. see a moment, a, a global stressor on all yeah, these Yeah, absolutely. What it taught us is culture can change overnight, literally. So one day, most of us were in the office. Next day, we're on Zoom. Right. Uh, so that was a huge cultural shift that happened literally for many companies. And here I'm thinking of my own clients in a day. Uh, right. So, so that, that, that transition, those changes are happening really, really quickly. And the other thing that's fascinating, and all of this, of course, is happening against the backdrop of tragedy and loss and suffering. And there's just such tremendous complexity, but we're going back to work. And so uh, we're going back to the office. And so yet again, you have another whipsawing change that's happening really quickly. And all of this is happening and amplified through social media. For all of those reasons, I think the speed of culture is picking up. If you think about a viral video, a trend or a catchphrase travels so quickly, is it the sharing of a vision? Is it the sharing of an interest? Is it is it the perpetuation of a habit? Is it all of those things when something becomes viral? Yeah. Is that what that yeah, signal that, yeah. is? Yeah. I think... Uh, I think all of the forces come into play, but, w- but definitely vision comes into play on social media in the sense that you literally see an image. Right. And on TikTok, uh, a meme might emerge uh, in the morning and become really hot and right. then disappear at the end of the day, literally. So, But if something goes speed. away in 24 yeah. hours, isn't it ephemeral? Are there... <sighs> 
You know, I mean, yes. I guess that's the other. Well, <laughs> yeah, and that's so maybe, that. So I guess what maybe of, you could make of a the lot nugget? Of money in Twenty-four hours. <laughs> well, true, true. I guess uh, commerce, but what I'm wondering at is, in the same way that you found patterns and stories, and you found patterns in the drivers, are there actually, if you back up, are there patterns in these viral things that could make managing and understanding the external culture, which influences our internal culture a little bit more, um, slow it down. So it's more understandable, you know, um, otherwise you just seem to be chasing, you know, it just, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it can be, you can understand it. I don't know that we could slow it down. I think oh, okay. that's, that is a really good question. It's really, it's really fascinating how we create culture and mm. then it creates us. Right. And so, you know, we've created social media and now it's creating us. So this sort of transmission of ideas and circulation has been happening ever since there's been culture. But uh, but now it's powered by social media. So the ideas can move around the world literally instantaneously. Right. And that changes so much. Right. Well, I just have to say the book is fantastic. And it's uh, thank you. just had a, a great and well-deserved review in Kirkus. Um, it has so much detail to help the reader internalize the content that you're sharing. And I highly recommend that people get the book and give it a read. And in the website show notes, there will be a click to purchase link. Thank you so much for sharing time with me today. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.